So, what if I told you there is a secret something, like a special sauce, a secret sauce, that has been scientifically proven to increase your work performance, increase your metabolism, increase your energy levels, increase your overall well-being, increase your metabolism, and what if I told you it does not come in the form of a pill or a potion or a lotion or a power drink? And what if I told you it is absolutely free? Would you want to know what it is? Would you want some of it? You want me to tell you? Yeah, let's wait a little while. So in the meantime, turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. We're going to dive into this story, but as you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of context. Uh, it's the winter of AD 32 when this moment takes place. I can't decide if I'm going to stand or sit. I think I'm going to stand. It's the winter of AD 32. Jesus is making his way down from Galilee towards Jerusalem for a final time before his crucifixion would take place that spring. Now, he's passing through this region called Samaria. And this is a big no-no for any Jewish person. They would always go around this region, but Jesus takes him and his disciples right through the middle of it. And it's a very uncomfortable situation because the Jews can't stand the Samaritans. You talk about some extreme racism going on. This was happening right during that time period. So they go right through the middle of Samaria and they happen to come across this little village. And it's a little village that's about three miles outside of the modern day known village as Jenin right now. You can go there and you can see right now there's a church that sits in this very place where this miracle takes place. Uh, and it's uh, the third oldest church in the world. Helena, the mother of Constantine. I said Constantinople last hour, and that's actually a city. Uh, Constantine was the emperor, of, first Christian emperor of Rome. And um, his mom went to Jerusalem and she studied all these places that all these great miracles took place. And she's the one who founded the church, the nativity. And she's the one who built, had this church built right here in this location, three miles outside the little village of Jenin in Israel. And so here we are passing through this region of Galilee and we come across Luke chapter 17, verse 11 through 19. And we're going to encounter an amazing story that happens here. And it has this secret ingredient in it that I was telling you about. Let's look at verses... Um, 11 and 12. This, first of all, is a hopeless situation. Now it happened as he went, Jesus, of course, is he, to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. I love that little phrase, by the way, as he went. It just seems like all these miracles that Jesus performed was sort of just as he went. It just sort of happened. He comes across a guy, or it happens that this person comes up to him, and it's as he goes that all this stuff happens. By the way, when you really study the life and the ministry of Jesus, everything he did seemed to happen as a result of an interruption. His entire ministry was interrupted by people. And then you kind of realize, well, maybe the ministry is the interruption. That's another message for another time. But I love that phrase, as he went. So he's going towards Jerusalem. He passes through Samaria and Galilee. And then verse 12 says, as he entered a certain village, there met him 10 men who were lepers, who stood afar off. Now there's a reason they're standing afar off because that was the law. If you were a leper, according to law, you had to be at least a hundred paces away from anybody. Talk about social distancing. And the reason is because leprosy was highly contagious. Now there's lots of different kinds of, of leprosy mentioned in the Bible. Uh, lots of different versions of it, all right? But the most common version was also the most deadly, and it's the one we think of. It's that version of, of leprosy or skin disease that 
causes the deterioration of the skin, makes the extremities of your body uh, just deteriorate to the point of literally even falling off. It is, uh, it is horrible on your joints and your hands and your feet. Um, and eventually it would make its way all the way up your extremities and, and, and kill you. So to have leprosy was a death sentence. So here we have Jesus encountering these 10 lepers and it's like 10 dead men walking, literally. There is no cure. And because they're completely outcast from society, they have no contact with anyone. They can't hug their wife anymore. They can't hug their kids. They can't go to work. They have no careers. They have nothing left. They're dead men walking, and therefore, they would have been incredibly lonely and frustrated and saddened. And so what would happen is, because they had to quarantine themselves anyway, lepers would find themselves and live in colonies. Because at least, even in the midst of their misery, there was some sense of community. And so here we have this small colony of 10 men who are lepers. They're living in desolation. They're living in desperation. And they're standing a far ways off. And they see Jesus coming into the village. And verse 13 says, they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, another symptom of leprosy is a hoarse voice. Your voice is deteriorating as well. Everything is deteriorating. And so here they are now, they're trying to call out to Christ, and yet they can't. It's like they're, they're from the movie The Godfather or something. You know, Jesus, help us. That's about as loud as they can yell. They have no voice. But the collective volume of 10 of them captures his attention, and he hears them from afar off. And here's what they're saying. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Hmm. They have a clear understanding of who Jesus is. Or perhaps they've heard reports that he even healed a leper, and that happens in Luke chapter five, by the way. He had healed a leper earlier, which by the way, is an incredibly important miracle in the Bible, very significant miracle that Jesus performed because it proved that he was the Messiah. You see, in Isaiah chapter 35 and in Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah uh, speaks this prophecy that one of the telltale signs that the person that you are seeing performing these miracles is the Messiah is that he would heal a Jewish person from leprosy. And that's the, in the, in, in, in that, that's the first of three major miracles in those, in those prophecies in Isaiah that are spoken and here Jesus has done that in Luke chapter five, and now he's about to do it again. But not just one person, he's about to do it tenfold. Jesus is proving to all the Jews and all the Samaritans that he truly is the Messiah. And he's doing this, making his way towards the cross in Jerusalem. But what's interesting is that these lepers aren't interested in his Messiahship. They don't even ask him to heal them. Look what they cry out for. They cry out for mercy, not healing. It's truly a, a heartbreaking scene, and it's a hopeless situation. But let's see the next thing, the hopeful response. In Luke 17, verse 14, the Bible says this. So when Jesus saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priest. Now, why on earth would he say that? I mean, that's a strange response. Jesus, have mercy on us. And his response is, go show yourself to the priest. Strange. This happens all the way through New Testament, by the way. Jesus will respond to people in a very different way than you would ever expect him to, to respond. 
And so this is a strange response, but here's the reason he did so. Because every Jewish person would know that in order to be cured from leprosy, once you were cured, you would then have to go show yourself to the priest. Well, the problem with this situation is that they haven't been cured yet. And yet he's telling them to go to the temple and show themselves to the priests. Now, the purification process, once somebody is cured from leprosy, was very complex and had tons of ritual involved. It's a very lengthy process, and you can read the entire process in Leviticus chapter 14, verses 1 through 32, if you're just looking for something to do this afternoon, to see how a leper would come back into the community. And the last step in that was required by law that a leper would then go to the priest to have the priest examine him in order to verify that he has actually been healed. And if he was, then he would be let back into society. Very rare occurrence because leprosy is a death sentence. There's no cure for leprosy. So this never happens. And yet here we are now in Luke chapter 17 and Jesus is about to heal 10 of them. And they don't know he's about to heal them, but he says, go show yourself to the priest. And so they have a decision to make. What he's asking them to do does not make sense from a logical standpoint, does it? I mean, you were not supposed to go to the priest unless you'd been cleansed already, because the priest is not a doctor. So they're going to have to respond in faith here. And they actually do. They begin to make their way towards the temple, not knowing why, they just did it because Jesus told them to do it. And I'm sure they're thinking to themselves, well, we got nothing else to lose, right? We're dying anyway. We might as well give it a shot. So they turn and make their way towards the temple. And this is a little lesson that we can find in here. See, there's many times in our lives where we simply need to take steps of obedience and faith. You don't understand it. Logic can't explain it. But when we sense the Lord is leading us, we need to take that step of faith. Because if we don't, we may never know the joy of what's to come next. Right? So let me just give you this. When you're in a hopeless situation, lean into your faith. Lean in. I love what Martin Luther King Jr. said. Faith is taking the next step when you can't see the whole staircase. I like that. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. And George Mueller reminds us that faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There's no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. I love that. So is there a practical takeaway from this already in this first part of the story? Well, yes, obedience to God begins with a small step of faith. So we have this hopeless situation. We have this hopeful response, but now let's look at their health being restored. Verse 14 says, and so it was that as they went, there's that phrase again, as they went, they were cleansed. Hmm. They were just taking one step at a time in faith, doing what Jesus told them to do, not knowing what might happen or what might happen, and then suddenly, the Bible indicates through its wording here that it's not a gradual thing, like they weren't making their way to Jerusalem and suddenly their hands started growing back or whatever. No, it's, a, it's an immediate thing. Suddenly, they're completely cured. Now, can you just imagine this moment? Just put yourself there for a minute. Ten lepers, you've got a deteriorating body, you have a death sentence, you're lonely, you have no contact with anybody, you're completely outcast by society, you're dying. And suddenly, everything is perfect. Can you imagine the excitement? 
I mean, can you just see these 10 miserable, lonely, hurting men and suddenly they're just cured just like that? I mean, this healing doesn't mean that they've simply gotten rid of a disease, folks. It literally means that they have their entire life back. Because after they go through the temple ritual and the priest declares them clean, they're welcome back into society. They can go home to their wives. They can go home to their kids. They can go home to their careers. It's a whole new life. So what's the takeaway from this? Well, what do we learn? Well, just remember that small steps of faith can lead to great works of God in our lives. And it doesn't take a lot of faith, just a little bit. Jesus reminds us that it's the faith of a mustard seed that can move mountains. So you notice this hopeless situation, and then you see the hopeful response. Then you see their health is restored, and now there's the happy return. One thing that's interesting to me is that we're not told how far they actually got down the road before the healing took place. It just says they went and suddenly. Now, how long it is between their going and then suddenly this miracle happening, I don't know. But something in me tells me that it obviously had to be far enough away to where it was just a little too inconvenient to go back. I mean, if they're 50 yards, 100 yards, my guess is that all 10 of them would go, hey man, let's go back and thank this guy. Wow, I mean, look what happened. Now, I think they probably got a mile or two, maybe three miles down the road. And they looked and they saw that they were cured and they were thankful, yes, but not so thankful that they had enough discipline or even the time to go back. I just wonder if, these stats are the same with us church folk here, where 90% of us don't thank Jesus like we ought to. Or if we did, maybe the 90% of us would read like this in verse 15. And then nine of them, when they saw that they were healed, returned and with three choruses and one hymn and a little tip in the offering plate, gave a pittance of praise and moved along their merry little way. And then the following weekend, they decided they would do it again, of course, unless there's a better option, like a sporting event or a social outing that might come up, and in which case they would delay their going back because those things take much higher precedence than the one who changed their life forever. And eventually, as the years went by, they would reserve these moments of thanks to a particular holiday service like Thanksgiving or Easter or Christmas. See, that's the natural progression of things. For those of you in this room who have been Christians many years, maybe Jesus has just sort of settled down at the bottom of your life and what you used to be so passionate and thankful for is now just sort of just a thing in passing. And now every once in a while we'll give a little thanks to Jesus, but there's other things that take precedence. Is that what happens here? Well, for nine of them, yes. But there was one. Luke 15, 16, verse, uh, chapter 17, verses 15 and 16. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God. And he fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. He's one of the outcasts. He's one of the despised. Something tells me the other nine guys were Jewish. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. 
Bible didn't tell us, but I feel like the other nine were Jews and he was a Samaritan. What brought them together was their community and this foundation of leprosy. That's what bonded them together. But now nine of them have been healed and they're heading towards the temple. This Samaritan, he doesn't know where else to go, but right back to the one who did the healing. <laughs> so he returns. And he has this emotion and, and, and passionate reply to this indescribable life-changing gift. And he does two things. He worships Jesus and he thanks Jesus. It's pretty elementary stuff, right? Worship and thanksgiving, folks, always go hand in hand. You cannot worship God without a grateful heart. You just can't. Hmm. So this man has experienced something unbelievable and his response is the right one. It's a response of worship. And worship is just that. It's a response of praise to God for all that he's given us and all that he's done for us. And we do that in a variety of different ways, right? We do it individually. We do it corporately. We've gathered here together corporately today to worship the Lord, to give him praise and honor for all that he has done, for all that he's doing, for how he's changed us, for how he's saved us, right? And, and, and individual worship and corporate worship can't survive one without the other. They feed off each other. So when we come together corporately like we have here on a Sunday morning, it's important that we experience the community. But what makes corporate worship so powerful is that it's a response from hundreds of us as individual worshipers. And what makes corporate worship so powerful is when you worship the Lord as an individual in and throughout the week, when you're falling in love deeper and deeper with Jesus every day, when you're reading your Bible, when you're praying, when you're seeking after him, when you're doing all the things that God wants you to do in your life, what it does is it fills your cup up and then you show up here on Sunday morning and rather than using this one little hour to get filled up for the rest of the week, no, Sunday morning becomes an overflow of what God's already doing in your life. And so it's both. It's individual, it's corporate, and they feed off of each other. But this man right here makes an individual response to come back to Jesus. He's by himself. He doesn't care. Jesus has cured him, and Jesus deserves his praise. And there's cultural and legal reasons that he eventually has to make his way to the temple through the ritual of the priest and be cleared for entrance back into society and all that, but not before he does what he needs to do first. Give the glory and the honor to the only one who's worthy of it. His name is Jesus. It's a good reminder that it's good to practice what I call the, the principle of firsts in our lives. The first day of the week is the Lord's. The first dime of every dollar is the Lord's. The first moment of every day, give it to the Lord. Our first response in all things should be thanks be unto the Lord. First Thessalonians 5.18 says, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus in you. Everything is the key word there. Why? Because he's worthy. Colossians 1, 15 through 18 says he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. Things that are visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He's the head of the body, the church, who's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in all things he may have the preeminence. Are you getting this, folks? He's worthy because he's a really big deal. 
Jesus is worthy. Listen to this. These verses place Jesus as the central figure in all of history. They place Jesus where he belongs. He's at the top of the pyramid of time and space and history and humanity. And it's under Jesus that all things exist. It was by Jesus that all things were created. It's because of Jesus that hope abounds and grace is abundant. All things and all people are behind him and beneath him. He's the master and ruler over all creation and he stands at the head of the table of time. He's the first, the last, and everything in between. He's preeminent savior and he's powerful king and nothing and no one is before him. And one day every knee will bow to him and proclaim him as Lord. He is worthy, whether you choose to worship him or not. But I suggest you do, because he holds your very future in his hands. He's who you need for salvation. He's who you need for hope. He's who you need for real mercy and real grace and an eternal home in heaven. And if you don't know him, would you surrender your life to him? He can save you. He can rescue you. He can bring you in a life of hope and deliverance and peace that you never thought possible. Will you give your life to Christ? If you're here today, if you're watching my television, there is no hope outside of him. There is no life outside of Jesus. Surrender your heart to him. Give him your life, and he'll save your soul. So verse 15, this leper cries out with a loud voice. I like that. This cured leper suddenly didn't think about any rituals at all. He didn't care about how he looked, who was watching, how he sounded. He's been cured. I wish we could be like that as believers, don't you? Just one time on Sunday morning, everybody came in here and you sang with reckless abandonment to God. And you worship the Lord as if you didn't care how anybody else felt. There's Christians all over the world doing that even as I speak right now. You know that? It's because they're completely free and they're living in victory. And this lone leper knew exactly who deserved the praise in his life. So he comes back shouting. Now you're saying, now brother, are you saying we need to shout in church? No, but yes. I'm just saying, if you don't want to, don't do it. But if you feel like shouting, ain't nothing wrong with shouting and giving praise to the one who's given you hope, right? Thank you. <laughs> I'm liking y'all a lot today. His motive is not attention, folks. His motive was affection. And even though you're maybe not a shouter, maybe you're not a hand raiser, that, that's okay. Some people are just more stoic. Some people are more reserved. But be careful not to confuse rigor mortis with reverence, all right? Just be careful. And I'm not talking about out of coma. I mean, out of control, just out of coma, you know. My mom, she's so funny. I've told you this story before, but she's this cute little five-foot, cute little thing. And one Sunday after service, she said, honey, that worship today was so powerful. Oh, I almost lifted my hands. <laughs> and I thought, whoa, mom, let's not get too crazy here. But... Uh, <laughs> So you maybe you're introverted, I don't know, but it, it, it should never keep you from expressing your worship in some way, shape, or form. Because it's the collective body of Christ, all worshiping together as individuals, that make this massive and incredibly 
magnificent symphony of praise to our creator. And it's the song of the redeemed that we sing together. And that's the most beautiful song of all. So we don't have to sing in unison, but we must worship with one heart in unity. And worship's not about a style, it's about a savior. It's not about a preference, it's about his presence. And it comes in so many forms, not just music. Oftentimes the most powerful worship comes by way of sacrifice of our time, our talents, and our treasures. So yes, worship comes in many different forms, but at the core of all worship is thankfulness. Thankfulness. Martin Luther was once asked to describe the nature of true worship. And he said this for his answer. He said, true worship is the 10th leper turning back. Wow. So when we worship, the Bible tells us we enter his gates with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the gate by which we encounter the presence of the Lord. And the Lord reminds us in Psalm chapter 50, giving thanks is a sacrifice that truly honors me. Now, at the beginning of this message, I told you there's this secret sauce, secret something in life that science has proven will give you better health and a sharper mind, and it's free. Now, you want me to tell you what that is? You probably guessed it. It's thankfulness of all things. Yeah. These are secular scientists, folks. These are people who study the brain for a living, like Alex Korb from Brain Sonics Incorporated, a doctor from UCLA and a scientific consultant for that company. This is just one of many findings that you can find online, but listen to the results of his findings. He says this, this is a quote, the wide variety of effects that gratitude can have may seem surprising, but a direct look at the brain activity during gratitude yields some insight. A study from the National Institute of Health examined blood flow in various brain regions while subjects summoned up feelings of gratitude. They found that subjects who showed more gratitude overall had much higher levels of activity in the hypothalamus. Now, what's the hypothalamus? I don't really know, but this is important because the hypothalamus controls a huge array of essential bodily functions like eating, drinking, sleeping, and metabolism. It also has a huge influence on not just your metabolism, but your stress levels. And from this evidence on brain activity, it starts to become clear how improvements in gratitude can have a wide-ranging effect from increased energy in exercise, in improved sleep patterns, to decreased depression, fewer aches and pains, and less stress. In other words, if you want to lose quicker, be less stressed, sleep better, have higher metabolism, and be more productive at work, be thankful. It's proven. So you got some homework this week, folks. I want you to go home and make a list of 100 things that you're thankful for. Now, that sounds like a lot until you realize just how much you're blessed, right? I mean, listen, if you have food in the refrigerator, clothes on your back, a roof over your head, and a place to sleep, do you realize you're richer than 75% of the population of this world? Do you realize that if you have any money in the bank at all, any cash in your wallet, spare change in a dish somewhere by your countertop, that you are among the top 8% of the world's wealthiest people? 
Do you know that if you made $1,500 or more last year, you were in the top 20% of the world's income earners? You see, it, it, it's not happy people who are thankful. It's thankful people who are happy. It doesn't matter if the glass is half empty or half full. Just be thankful you got a stinking glass. Right? Dan Rockwell says this, gratitude invites, ingratitude repels. So I want to encourage you just to start thinking with an attitude of gratitude. Alphonse Carr said this, some people are always grumbling because roses have thorns. I'm just thankful that thorns have roses. I love that mentality. That is an attitude of gratitude, isn't it? See, you don't pretend the thorns don't exist, but you choose to focus on the roses instead. Mm. I'm naturally, a, you may be surprised at this. My wife will tell you, I'm pretty pessimistic. I find something to complain about over everything. I can find something wrong with anything. I'm incredibly critical and I'm not proud of that. If you want to know more, just ask my wife. But I'm constantly reminded of just how grateful I am. I sat there at that Cowboys game Thursday. And I thought, man, am I blessed. I got two healthy boys, a healthy wife. I'm standing here, coming through COVID and all that mess. I'm just glad to be in the room. Mm. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings and see what God has done. Even the great theologian Willie Nelson said it this way. When I started counting my blessings, my whole life turned around. He probably said that while he was on the road again. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was really cheesy. For those of you under 40 years old, you have no idea what I'm even talking about. <laughs> so what, what's the takeaway? Well, let's review. Obedience to God begins with a small step of faith. Small steps of faith can lead to great works of God in our lives. But let me give you one more. God deserves our praise and our thanksgiving for those daily works he does in and through each of our lives. It's that simple. So we see this hopeless situation, right? We saw the hopeful response. We saw their health has been restored, all 10 of them. And then you see their happy return from one of them. But then my favorite part, the healing is completed. I love this. Luke 17, verses 17 and 18. So Jesus answered and said, Where, were there not 10 cleansed? <laughs> he knows what he's done. But, but where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this one foreigner? See, this is both a joyous and a sad part of the story. Picture the lives of these nine men. Three or four months down the road, Jesus is crucified. Then he's resurrected from the dead. The stories were everywhere. They heard the stories. And I can just imagine them sitting down at dinner with their kids or their grandkids or their wife and telling the story about how this guy that was resurrected from the dead, yeah, he's the one that healed me from leprosy. How cool is that? And they got this great story, but that's as far as it goes because they never really got to know him. They just know him as the one who healed them, right? They know his voice. They know what he looked like. They know how he walked and how he talked. But they never got near to him. Therefore, they never knew his heart. The other nine represent for us an ungrateful spirit. They're happy to be healed, but not grateful enough to come back. They gladly received a cure, but they failed to return to Christ. I'm sure they're thankful, but I love what William Ward said. He said, listen, feeling gratitude and not expressing it 
is like wrapping a present and not giving it. And for this one foreigner, everything's different. He comes back. Usually the most thankful ones are the ones who've been rescued from the most desperate situations. Hmm. So where are the other nine? Well, they still exist today. They sit in every row of every church. Who are the other nine? Well, sometimes we all are. I think we all have moments where we're living in seasons of great thankfulness and other seasons where we just allow Jesus to settle down to the bottom and other things take precedence, right? Maybe you're like that today. You just feel like your life is just full of drudgery now and your Christian existence is not passionate and fiery like it used to be. Could it be because you've simply lost your attitude of gratitude? Let me implore you to go back and rediscover the goodness of God in your life and begin to thank God for all things. And after this, in Luke, 19, Luke 17, verse 19, Jesus says to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. See, Jesus cured this man of disease, but now he heals him also. Did you know that there's a difference between being cured and being healed? In verse 14, the Samaritan man was cured from leprosy along with the other nine, but when he returns to Christ, he receives more than a cure. He is healed. And Jesus says, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. That word well is a Greek word, sozo, and it literally means saved, to be made whole. This man was cured from leprosy, but when he comes back to Christ, Christ then saves him and his soul. Wow. See, often the words for healing and curing are used interchangeably, but their definitions are, are much different. Curing is a restoration of health an absence of symptoms and a remedy of disease. Healing is a restoration of wholeness that includes mental, emotional, spiritual vitality, and wellness. Do you see the difference? I don't know about you, but I've experienced both. When I developed this polyp on my left vocal fold, and I ended up at the doctor in New York City, and I thought I'd never sing again, and I was completely terrified of what I was gonna do for a career, because as you know, if I can't sing, then I'm pretty much of a creek. I don't have any other skill set. And so there I was, terrified that my life was over. And in eight minutes, through a laser surgery, Dr. Peek Wu up there in Central Park, New York City, cured me from the polyp on my left vocal fold. But then he looked at me and he said, now, no noises for five days. Don't speak, don't whisper, don't hum, don't snore. Don't sneeze. I was like, how am I? I don't know how. Okay. So for five days, I was in total silence. I was cured in that moment, but over those next five days, I was healed. God had to break me in a lot of different areas and in a lot of different ways. And even though I got rid of the polyp in one eight-minute period, it took the next five days for God to heal me. And at the end of those five days, I was whole. You see the difference. And so sometimes people wonder why I'm so happy on Sunday mornings leading worship. I'll tell you why. Because there was a day when I thought I'd never get to do it again. And I'm reminded every time I stand on a platform anywhere 
of the privilege I have just of being here. Thank you, Jesus. In October 1942, World War II was raging, claiming the lives of millions around the globe. And Captain Eddie Rickenbacker was on a mission on a B-17 bomber called the Flying Fortress to deliver an important message to General Douglas MacArthur. But there was an unexpected detour, things went bad, the plane ran out of fuel over the South Pacific Ocean, and they had to make a crash landing in the ocean. Miraculously, the entire crew survived, but now they're surviving in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of nowhere, on survival rafts. And over the course of the next 30 days, they would have to figure out how to survive. And things got desperate. Now listen to the words of Captain Eddie. He says, Captain William Cherry had just read the service that afternoon and we finished with a prayer for deliverance and a hymn of prayers. And there was some talk, but it tapered off because of the oppressive heat. So with my hat pulled down over my eyes to keep out the glare, I dozed off. And then something landed on my head. I knew that it was a seagull. I don't know how I knew, I just knew. Everyone else knew it too. And no one said a word, but peering out from under my hat brim without moving my head, I could see the expression on their faces. We were starving, and they're staring at that seagull, and that goal meant food, if I could just catch it. So he reached up and he grabbed, and somehow that seagull didn't move. And they were able to take that seagull and eat the flesh as food, and it sustained them, and then they used his remains as bait to catch other fish. And do you know that over the course of 30 days in that ocean, they survived because of that one seagull? He was so grateful that he never forgot. In fact, all the way up until his death in 1973, fully 30 years later, every Friday afternoon, you would see an old man with bushy eyebrows, bent over, white hair, walking the seacoast of the Atlantic down in southern Florida with a, back, a, bus, a bucket full of shrimp, and he would be throwing it out there, feeding the seagulls. As a reminder to himself, that there was one which on a day long past gave itself without a struggle and saved his life. Captain Eddie remained grateful his entire life and never forgot the sacrifice of that seagull. Maybe today you feel like Captain Eddie did on that tiny raft. Maybe you feel like your life is lost and drifting in an ocean of doubt or a sea of hopelessness. And you've tried every which way to rescue yourself but you come to this place where you know you cannot do this on your own. Well, can I just remind you, there was a day, a long day passed, and there was one who gave himself up without a struggle in order to save your soul. His name is Jesus. You see, the fact is, we were all born with this degenerative disease, and it's way worse than leprosy, folks. It's called sin. And this sin is the greatest killer of all. And we are just like those lepers. We are dead men walking. And there's only one hope for healing, and his name is Jesus. So would you bow your heads, please? If you're lost, I want to remind you he is the way. If you're searching for meaning, I want to remind you he is the truth. If you are hopeless, I want to remind you that he can make you whole. If you're here today and you're looking for hope, Look no further than Jesus. We will have pastors here at the front as we close the service. I just want to ask you to come make your way down and take one of these pastors by the hand and simply say this, man, I'm looking for hope. That's all you got to say. 
we would love to introduce you to Jesus. But if there's some of you here today, and, 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 and maybe you know the Lord, but he sort of settled down, and, and, and now you're part of that nine instead of the one. Could I just implore you to come back? Don't do, do it for your spiritual reasons. Do it for health reasons, for crying out loud. Get back an attitude of gratitude as we enter this Christmas season. Because it's there that you'll find your spirit is lifted. The load is lightened. And your heart is more in tune with the one who's healed you, made you whole. So as we begin to sing this little song of thanksgiving, I invite you to stand. And you make the decision that the Lord tells you to make. Open your heart now. Let's sing it. goodness of God. Sing the goodness of God with the encounters you have this week. Sing the goodness of God with how you treat your wife and how you treat your family. Sing the goodness of God in everything that you say and all that you do this week. Go in peace, but live a life of thankfulness. God bless you, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We're so glad you joined us. If you prayed to receive Christ today, we'd love to hear from you. We want to help you as you begin this new journey of faith in Jesus Christ. Send an email to the address on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. Likewise, if you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you'd like to know more, we're here to help you. Just reach out to us and we'd love to tell you more. Our mission at Thomas Road is to change our world by developing Christ followers who love God and love people. If you'd like to help us fulfill that mission by giving to our ministry, go to the link on your screen and make your contribution today. Help us help others with the life-changing truth of God's love.